Hello, who are listening to the Greekonomics podcast. Let's begin the episode of the best podcast in the world. Hey, everybody. This is Alkis, and you're listening to the Greekonomics podcast, the show that explores how social, technological, and economic conditions will affect the businesses of the future with a focus both on the Greek economy and worldwide. In today's episode, we have invited Eric Mason. Given the recent fuss about the state of the US economy and the tight labor market, we felt the need to invite someone who can help us understand some key questions that we have. He is a practicing labor economist who currently works as a chief economist in local government and his area of research focuses primarily on small businesses and macroeconomic trends. He has a special interest in historical economics, climatrics. Now, I want to get right to it, Eric, without wasting much time. Um, based on the recent, a recent report I read, the July payroll numbers increased and revised higher to 398,000 from 372,000. The unemployment rate fell to 3.5%, which is considered full employment. The average hourly earnings were up 5.8% in July, not the type of numbers that would warrant a Fed pivot at this point. On the other hand, I have to confess that I am somewhat surprised at the strength of the labor market given two quarters of contracting GDP, corporate margins contracting, major companies freezing hires or actively laying off workers. There's no way that these developments go hand in hand with strong job creation. Is there a time lag in these numbers that we are seeing or how can you explain that? Yeah, absolutely. So let's kind of break this down into like three portions. First, let's talk a little bit about labor. Right? My, ba- my research background, I love labor, I love public policy. So I think the best way to address this is first talking about the labor side of it, the, pu- the public policy side of it, what we've seen over the last few years, and kind of what the general concept of what this GDP growth number actually means. Because in a lot of cases, GDP can be kind of a misleading statistic, especially in the wake of such a turbulent time as what we've seen over the last two and a half years. So to kind of hit, the first one I want to hit is, uh, is on the labor side. Yeah, no, I, I, I can agree with you. Like, you know, it is, it is confusing. It is a unique time to see it, that what we're seeing in the market specifically in the labor market. But when we look at the unemployment rate, that number needs to be contextualized against the labor force participation, which is basically the number of the percent of the population that is working, of working age people who are working. And and after the pandemic and during the recovery, I shouldn't say after the pandemic, but after the initial portion of the pandemic, we saw labor force participation rate freefall. You know, if we look at the Federal Reserve data, it's in April 2020. So right when we went to lock to shut down lockdown, have you wanted to labor, labor force participation rate was at 60%. And I will it, since the you know, post 2008 recession, you know, you're really looking at a labor force participation rate between 63 and 65. And it's important to remember that the 1% is 3 million people, give or take. So falling five, three, five, percent is, you know, you're talking somewhere between 9 and 15 million people falling out of the workforce. Now, we have rebound. We're around 62%, give or take. I think the last report 
with that July 2022, it was about 62%. So we have recovered about halfway up to where we were previously. So while you're seeing a lot of the, these unemployment rates come in, these, this unemployment rate coming very, very well, to, I don't know if it, it fits the classic definition of what economists define as full employment, which lines up completely with what you said. I think we still have, I think we still have a few million more people that need to get back to the workforce. And I think that's shadowed by another important labor statistic, which is number of non-farm job jobs open. So the Federal Reserve also, they look at the number of job openings for on non-farm payrolls, and that's about 4 million jobs higher than it was before the pandemic. So there's still some demand, and uh, there's, I would say there's still a lot of demand that's been unsatisfied in this labor market. And I think that demand is because we haven't seen people re-enter the market. Now... I, I kind of just, if we're jumping back and forth between the math, we're still about 1% or 2% labor force participation rate below where we were before the pandemic, which is about 4 million jobs. And we're seeing 4 million jobs open, open right now. So I still think there's some people that need to reenter their workforce. But, you know, the post-pandemic times from an economic standpoint have unseen. You know, it's one of those, we don't have data to reference this. So we're all kind of learning as we're going along. The other thing I want to bring up is public policy. So over the last, I am I'm a self-confessed nerd. I've read the entire CARES Act and the entire ARPA Act. And one of the things is that when that when you start talking about $4 trillion of spending or the U.S. government coming upon a two point, about $2.1 trillion def- deficit for this year, that's that's extra stimulation in the economy. That That's what drives inflation in, in large cases, It's which is why, you know, you brought up very pointedly that, you know, these numbers usually don't warrant Fed action. And I would agree with you on that point. I would say in this these this unprecedented period of government spending over the last two years. And some of that government spending was well justified. Some of that government spending wasn't well justified. But it still got spent. And I always stay with the political narrative. So I'm just saying that extra spending in the economy, that drives up demand for goods and services. Government demands goods and services when it's spending. And when it does that, that increases inflation. And so what the Fed is trying to fight against, I think, is a lot of that that type of inflation caused by federal spending, or just any type of governmental spending. They're not really fighting it on the consumer investment portions of GDP. And to kind of wrap up that, I know I hate to be meandering so long, but... No, no, of course, of course. The labor market is so interlaced with every single aspect of the economy that if you start talking about one thing, you immediately need to explain the other thing. But sorry sorry to interrupt you. The main, the main issue here, is it essentially that the main shortcoming of the way that we measure the unemployment rate is the fact that discouraged workers are not included. So supposedly the unemployment rate is higher than what we're seeing on the numbers that are being published. Yes, I would say, and I would say that's, that's common is that, you know, it's hard to account for discouraged and underemployed individuals because that's a, that's a softer metric. That's a harder metric. What, who is really underemployed? When do you become underemployed? When are you a discouraged worker? And discouraged workers are actually been a point of public policy since 2008. And there's something called the WIOA program, which gives money to regional governments to try and bolster those workers into higher producing. But what's important to remember with the unemployment rate is that it's made up of three parts, cyclical unemployment, structural unemployment, and functional unemployment. Structural unemployment is loss of skills. Those are people who their skills are no longer demanded in the economy and they lose their job. Cyclical unemployment has to do with the business cycle, the economic cycle. And frictional unemployment is people who just like usually very, very highly educated doctors, engineers, stuff like that, who ch- are choosing not to work as they're, in bet- as they're trying to pick their next career move. So we don't really worry about frictional unemployment because it's, it's people opting not to work because they're usually very highly skilled and just waiting for the right opportunity. Cyclical unemployment, you know, we just had a pretty big whiplash in terms of 
we had a GDP growth, we had, G, we had GDP contraction, and then you spin that off into just how much the work world has changed in the last two years, that can be kind of difficult. But in particular, the one I want to point out is structural employment. There's a lot of people who just haven't been able to adapt to the post-pandemic lifestyle, the post-pandemic work market. And that, I think, is a part of the reason they haven't re-entered the labor force. I, I think they felt they've fallen out of the labor force, and that's why we're still seeing that decline in the labor force participation rate. And because that number is lower, it's producing stronger, un- a lower unemployment number. It's not the worst thing in the world, but it's certainly a piece of public policy we can't ignore. Mm-hmm. So far, the job losses are concentrated in tech, mortgage, and housing industries, which have slowed considerably due to either a drop in consumer spending, rising interest rates, or both. Yet, is this something, are we expecting the labor market to adjust to the current trend in the economy? Yeah, I, I think absolutely. First off, absolutely. I think I think you're you're right on with that. With you know that direction and magnitude. I will say, if you look at the industries that are laying people off, I mean, we, we've seen this when some electric vehicle companies have laid people off. There's been certainly mortgage and tech industries. I, I part of me, and this is me getting a little speculatory, is I often wonder if during the pandemic, when you saw this move to tech based. In tech-based remote working became so in- it overheated those industries, and now what we're seeing is not necessarily just a, a contraction of the industry, but the industry restabilizing to its pre-pandemic trend. And a lot of those layoffs are a product of that. And I certainly don't want to minimize layoffs. I'm one of those believers that every percent drop in unemployment is fantastic because that's another individual who found a job and found opportunity. I just think, from a kind of a rational statistical standpoint, that this may be. We might be seeing the correction now and that when this stabilizes afterwards, we might retake that trend up that we saw pre-2020. In general, though, low unemployment causing wages to rise seems like a sensible thing we would want. Why not want to get paid more? And historically, wage increases have not kept up with inflation. So I think it's a great thing that's happening. But And for our listeners, I would like to note that the labor market is said to be tight if vacant jobs are plentiful and available workers are scarce. It is said to be loose if the opposite holds true. And what I wanted to ask you is, what are the unforeseen consequences of a tight labor market? Should we, should we be happy about the state of the labor market now? Or are there any hidden dangers lurking because of the state of the, market right, of the labor market right now? So, yeah, I mean, there are, so one of the hidden threats to the labor market right now is something that gets talked about fairly frequently in like labor economic circles, but I'm not sure if it's ever, if it beco- has become a mainstream mainstream yet. And one of that is what we call a labor spiral or a wage spiral, sometimes what it's called. And first off, it's fantastic that real wages are up. I mean, we've gone about 40 years without real wage increases. And now we're seeing even with this high inflation environment, real wages increase. But that, that's important to the, you know, the average American. And it should be because it, it not only stimulates consumer consumption, but also it, it increases investment incomes. So, any, But one of the concerns that we have in labor economics is what happens when these companies have to pay very, very high salary to attract more workers, and that demand contracts, and then you have these higher paid workers. Well, the natural cycle of that is you lay off the higher paid workers. So we're seeing real average household earnings increase, particularly to quote your statistic in July, to 5.8%. Is that 5.8% sustainable in the long run? Because in the long run is what matters in these situations, particularly with labor. Labor is a very long-run economic input. And it's very, it, it's, you know, labor is very interesting because labor is the easiest thing to roll off a company's book. But when we talk about developing labor forces and economics, we talk about developing 
something over the course of decades, over generations, is developing labor forces. So if that 5.8% is sustainable, which I'm actually pretty optimistic on that it is, we have to make sure that those individuals and those companies aren't falling into, we're not encouraging public policy that goes that causes labor spirals. And sometimes wage spiral, labor spiral can be caused by too much government spending in one industry. And then when the government contracts that spending, it's easier for the company to lay off those individuals than take any other remediations to address the shortcomings in revenues. After the pandemic, do you believe that the impact of the of all the trends in the labor market that we have seen during the during and after the pandemic, like the Great Resignation, the trends with regards to people realize we think re reevaluating their lives during the lockdowns and realizing that I would like to do something different. Do you feel like what do you believe like will be the main change that we are going to see in the labor market? Are are the workers going to gain more power than the employer, which is going to be a significant shift from what we have had during the previous years? I don't know what's what's your take on that? Yeah. I think the decentralization of labor is what I think is the most interesting trend. When you're able to work remotely, so there's been a lot of economic literature, especially written around the turn of the century, that was basically talking about remote workers. And there's some studies from the early 2000s, late 1990s, that basically showed that you could be just as productive working remote as you can be work in the office. In some cases, some jobs even more so. And what we begin, what we begin to see is that workers are empowered because they can live anywhere and still demand higher salaries that are more in line with very high to live in areas. For, I want to bring you know real world example, and that's the ascent program in the state of West Virginia, where people were paid twelve thousand dollars to work remote in the state of West Virginia, but maintain their job, say in New York City. And you look at the price difference between living in New York City and living in you know say you know Morgantown, West Virginia, or Charleston, West Virginia, you're getting a far higher return on your dollar, both at, uh, across the board, from housing to food to whatever ha- have you. Yet you're still making that New York City money, and that's going to stimulate economies. That's going to stimulate economies like in Southern West Virginia or Appalachia in general. Oklahoma also has a similar plan. So being able to decentralize these workforces gives the employee a lot of power. Because the employee no longer is confined to their geographic job market. Their job market is the United States, or sometimes even beyond the United States. And that is going to shift power more towards the employee. I don't know if it will begin to make employees outweigh the employers themselves, but I certainly see it shifting more towards the employee side. Isn't this also a way to limit income inequality or is the impact of let's say gentrification which is the when more affluent individuals arrive in a poorer neighborhood because of for example remote working and the fact that they go and live there and the increasing demand of houses actually raises the rents and many people that used to live there might not be able to do so right now or like how do you believe is the impact more on the positive side or or not with regards to income inequality about this change Well, uh, I, you know, a great point you brought up, and I kind of want to jump on it when it's talking about gentrification of, say, neighborhoods and larger. So we actually have a model for this. It's called the Alonzo Moth Mills model. Sometimes it's short to just being called the monocentric city model. And what that basically is is that it shows that neighborhoods can be expressed in how expensive they are to be lived in by their distance from the center business district. So, you know, take Manhattan, for example. It's really, really expensive to live in downtown Manhattan. But it becomes progressively less and less expensive as you move further and further and further away from downtown New York. And we see this apply in every major city from Boston to Philly to L.A. to Seattle. And as 
those business districts begin to demand high, more expensive labor. They have to pay more. And as they pay more, those people want to live closer to their job because they want to cut down commute time. And that's what really causes a lot of the gentrification effects that we see. As you decentralize work, the center business districts no longer become meaningful in that discussion. Maybe the the office space, the tall towers and stuff, they matter. But you don't really start to see the bands of neighborhoods being gentrified around there because there's simply not the wage demand. Those workers can work in much different places and never actually have to converse. Now, there's a downside to that. If you don't have business professionals spending their income in, say, dry cleaning sub shops, corner stores, once that revenue drives up, that can really hurt a lot of uh, working class individuals because there isn't demanding, you know, a sub every, every day for lunch or demanding dry cleaning. So there are some adverse effects of removing workers from those areas. But overall, it it can lower rent prices, but you know if if it's you know there are benefits of living in a city, and if you're a working class individual, and there's no longer demand in that area from office workers coming in or higher income individuals coming in, you may not be better off. It may be a hey, you know my home my rent went down, but so did the demand for my work, and I think that's something that can be addressed through good government policy to try and encourage or revamp some of these neighborhoods and revamp some of these labor clusters we see, but that's going to take a lot longer than, say, a, a few quarters to, to figure out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we need an adjustment by the government to be able to tackle the issues raised by this phenomenon. I mean, yeah. I, I would say it's part of the solution. I, I, I'm, I'm not somebody who's against government spending. I'm not for government spending. It's more like I think it can be a product of good government policy can help address these, but I think it needs to work in conjunction with the private sector. Of course. And another thing, since we have you here, another thing I I was constantly reading about in January after the minimum wage increase and especially given the work done by Alan Kruger and David Card, who won the Nobel Prize. I think, was it last year? Uh, I'm not sure, though. Yeah, it it was recently. It was, yeah, anyway, it was recently, which really made the topic about the minimum wage really, really important to discuss again, as it always was. I think it's always a government policy that gets a lot of media attention when it's brought forth. But what is your, what, in your opinion, what is the ideal minimum wage? What's the, the best way to use this tool to the, the best way we can? Well, I think it's hard to have an ideal federal minimum wage, just speaking on how complex the United States is. I think it's hard to have, you know, a place like Tulsa, Oklahoma, has much different labor composition than Boston, Massachusetts. So a federal minimum wage, I I think is, it can be, do a lot, like a lot bigger disservice to the labor market than a state minimum wage or even a regional minimum wage like we see in Seattle or we see in New York, New York City side. So I I think if you are going to, subscribe to the minimum, an idea of having a minimum wage that reflects some sort of perfect ratio within a market. There has to be considerations done for an unfortunate fact we see with minimum wage, which is that when you have minimum wage, wage increases, you see weekly earnings. And that's what nobody wants. Nobody wants that. The people, champions of high minimum wage, champions of no minimum wage, to everybody in the, and everybody in the middle, we want to see more dollars going into individuals' pockets. And it's important not to support policy that decreases those numbers. So I, my view on minimum wage is that minimum wage needs to be a tool used to create boundaries, not a tool used to create a median. So I think minimum wage is really good in situations that protects workers. So if you have a situation where there's one employer in a in an area. So say you have what's going on in like Southern Appalachia and there's one employer and th- th- we have a name for that. It's called the HHI index, which is uh, measures how much influence one company has in the market. 
Yeah, the Hörfelderschma index is this yep. the name. Yep. And, uh, Where you, I think we square the you square the the market uh, share of each firm essentially, isn't that the way they calculate that? Exactly. So when you have these large firms that say dominate one regional area, yes, that's when it's good, good government policy would be to step in there and be like, hey, you have to pay your workers a minimum amount. Otherwise, you can end up with de facto company towns, which is horrible. But when you have very, very, very competitive markets, what you don't want to do is that when you have high, what we call like high inelastic demand, so very, very, a very, very steep demand for labor, you don't, if you, if you have a minimum wage, what you can do is actually knock out thousands of work hours of an economy by just arbitrarily moving the minimum wage. Minimum wage should be tied to good, solid economic rationale. It just shouldn't be a policy. It should be an equation more than a policy. So we we should be very cautious with it. Just, uh, just continuously increasing the minimum wage without any point of reference, I think hurts a lot of workers more than it helps because it may make their per hour rates go up, but their weekly earnings severely decline. And so I always advocate like our primary focus should be the workers. Like it, every like when we whenever we've been biased, obviously because I'm a labor economist, but workers are what matter. Like making sure somebody has food on the table and is keeping the wolves away should supersede you know large scale capital investment because labor is always a privately owned asset. So we need to make sure that labor stays strong. And even though just it seems like a good idea to just keep increasing the minimum wage. We still have to retroactively look at the statistics and base our public policies on those statistics, which I know is a long-winded answer to your question. Yeah. Is there a way to, based on what you talked about, look at the numbers, identify which areas or industries seem like a monopsony for labor and apply a specific minimum wage to this exact situation? Because I believe that the best way to use a minimum wage from what and from what i understood also from what you said using it as a boundary is usually with in cases in which there is one buyer of labor so he has great power over these people so there is room for them to actually to actually raise the wages because they are artificially lower is there a way to like specifically add a minimum wage to these exact industries or firms let's say Yeah, not that it's a perfect science, but if we start, if we break down what wage is, so wage is the marginal production of labor times the price level of the economy. Marginal production of labor is the first is the first partial derivative of the production function, where L, where L or labor inputs are brought to their first derivative. Another way to understand that is if you draw a supply and demand chart of labor, which where the the supply equals demand. So marginal production of labor is basically the value the value added by adding one more unit of labor, whether it's one more worker, one more hour of work, or whatever metric you want to use. So the question becomes, does P matter? Does price matter? Now, if you have a company that, app, like just like you said, monopsony, where a company dominates the market, well, then that company can affect the price level within the economy itself. And that's when you can begin to have a discussion on, okay, how do we ensure that the marginal production of labor, you know, it... it in the wage makes sense that they correlate to one another. Now, when you have when you have companies that all have very very low impact on the HH the HH index, you really want to make sure that those firms you know they're more susceptible to minimum wage increases that will lead to a reduction in the number of hours worked. And I, I think that's the crux of it. So, if I was to do a if I was to break out my whiteboard and do a pure calculation, I would say you know it's like everything in economics. You want the margin return to be equal to zero. So you, if you could figure out the price level, you take the marginal production of labor and you set that equation equal to zero. And whatever input you have to put in to marginal production of labor to get it to equal zero, so 
so zero would be like the apex of the curve. I, that, that would be the answer. That's hard to internalize the public policy. So a lot of times it's better just to, you know, take a safety margin and look towards the a lower end amount to make sure that you're not cutting people out of the labor force. But just to jump off this, I'm actually a big proponent of instead of setting a minimum wage to set a minimum education investment. So take the, you know, theoretical loss in economic productivity from increasing minimum wage. And instead, the instead of the government, you know, inducing that, which does lead to more social spending, invest in like free community college or free trade schools, um, mm -hmm. which is going to increase how productive an employee is. It's going to increase that MPL. And things that also have a much bigger cumulative impact than setting a minimum wage also. Yeah, and, and I think there's a, I, I think both are good tools. Like, I'm not saying that, like, you know, we should abandon minimum wage across the board. I'm not saying that all education should be completely free. I'm more saying that I'm a moderate in everything I do. So I'm like, hey, no, these are all good tools. Let's put all the tools in the toolbox and do the best thing for the American worker. So education is a better way. Productivity growth is a better way to allow these people to actually have higher living standards, right? Is this what you're trying to say? Sorry, just yeah, if, if, let's take like a, you know, an example of something like somebody works at Walmart and they get paid, say, 10 bucks an hour. If I give that person $15 an hour, we know all wages equal to either how productive you are as a worker, marginal production of labor, times price level. So what did I increase? Did I increase the price level or did I increase, did I make, or did I make them more productive? Well, I didn't make them more productive. I just gave them more money. But if I take that same $5 increase and I said, you know what? Instead, we're going to invest in education and we're going to train you better. We're going to teach you coding. We're going to teach you accounting. Well, then I'm making the worker more productive and I'm going to end up, that worker's end up going to make more money and have in a higher level of production, which is going to grow the economy as a whole. And it's not going to affect price level. So it's not going to make the workers standing beside them less money because they're, the price level rose, which is inflation. Yeah, essentially it is, you have a toolbox of policies that you can use depending on the situation. But I, I totally agree with what you said. And at this point, I could ask a dozen of other <laughs> questions relating to to the labor market, but just to stay within, you know, the drive length episode time, I think I'd keep it. I would like to end the episode at this question, but to be honest, I have a dozen of other questions about the labor market, which are very, very important and very, very interesting because I, I believe that studying the labor market is one of the most interesting fields in economics and one of the most significant in order to understand macroeconomic trends and are, are generally, I think, one of the most underrated indicators and fields that one can look at in order to to look at the state of the of the economy. But anyway, yeah, thanks. Your insight was truly great. I myself, I I think I learned a lot from what you talked about today in just half an hour. So I would like to uh, to thank you for being with us today. I would also like to have you on a future episode. We yeah, find a another interesting topic like these ones but yeah thanks a lot for your time eric thank you thank you for tuning in greek economics listeners and we will meet again in the next episode